Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Dr. Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror, as the New York Times wrote, is one of the most important psychiatric works published since Freud. It is the foundational text, along with The Body Keeps Score, written by Dr. Herman's close collaborator, Bessel van der Kolk, for understanding trauma and how to treat it. Trauma is widespread in American society, not only among veterans that fought in our forever wars, but in millions of homes across the country beset by domestic and sexual violence. One in five Americans was sexually molested as a child. One in four was beaten by a parent to the point of a mark being left on their body. One in three couples engages in physical violence. A quarter of us grew up with alcoholic relatives. One out of eight witnessed their mother being beaten or hit. The consequence of this trauma is personal and social. It impels people, Dr. Herman writes, both to withdraw from close relationships and to seek them desperately. It results in a profound disruption in basic trust. It induces feelings of shame, guilt, and inferiority, as well as the need to avoid reminders of the trauma that occur in daily life. Trauma compromises the capacity for intimacy. Trauma can dramatically reduce focus to extremely limited goals, often a matter of hours or days. It often engenders the survivor triad of insomnia, nightmares, and psychosomatic illnesses. Chronic trauma can result in a paralysis of initiative, feelings of apathy, helplessness, and depression. And it can see survivors, to blunt the pain of trauma, engage in a variety of self-destructive behaviors, a retreat into drugs, alcohol, and self-harm, including suicide. In short, repeated trauma forms and deforms the personality, especially when this trauma occurs in childhood. Trauma is of epidemic proportions in the U.S. The failure to address our trauma has grave individual, social, and political consequences. In the first of two parts, Dr. Herman, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and co-founder of the Victims of Violence program, discusses her book, Trauma and Recovery, the Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror. Next week, we will discuss her new book, Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice. As you know, I'm a tremendous fan of your book. And as a war correspondent, and I'm not alone, your book was uh, incredibly helpful as we navigated our own experiences with trauma. Um, in the introduction, I'm just going to read a couple sentences and have you comment. You write, the conflict between the will to deny horrible events and the will to proclaim them aloud is the central dialectic of psychological trauma. People who have survived atrocities often tell their stories in a highly emotional, contradictory, and fragmented manner, which undermines their credibility and thereby serves the twin imperatives of truth-telling and secrecy. When the truth is finally recognized, survivors can begin their recovery, but far too often secrecy prevails and the story of the traumatic event surfaces not as a verbal 
narrative but as a symptom. You spend a lot of time in the book talking the, the various ways trauma expresses itself, but I want you to begin there, that, that the narrative uh, surfaces not as a verbal narrative but as a symptom. Yes, thank you, Chris, for, for having me on your show. And um, yes, this really takes us back to the history of studies of traumatic stress um, and, their, and the disguised presentation of trauma that manifests often as... Um, physical symptoms, uh, and this was seen uh, in men who served in combat. Uh, it was called shell shock, uh, and it was also seen in women uh, with mysterious uh, failures of language and apparent paralyses and even pseudo-seizures. Um, and these symptoms were diagnosed as hysteria. Uh, and it was already discovered in the late 19th century um, uh, that uh, hysteria was the consequence of trauma. Those, those uh, discoveries were made independently uh, by Pierre Janet in Paris and Sigmund Freud in Vienna. Um, and both of them, by uh, paying attention to women with hysteria and actually talking with them and forming a relationship with them and, and asking about their childhoods, independently discovered that many of them reported uh, physical and or sexual abuse. Uh, but that discovery was so uh, unthinkable, if you will, uh, that in the end, Freud retracted his discovery uh, and concluded not on the basis of any data, but simply on the basis of the fact that this, the, I, the thought was anathema, that uh, the women must have fantasized about this because actually it was something they desired. And thus well, was- I just want to interject because oh. in the book, you make the point that the reason he retracted it was because it was so common. And, and you write that uh, if his patient stories were true, uh, and if his theory was correct, he would be forced to conclude that what he called, quote, perverted acts against children, end quote, were endemic, not only among the proletariat of Paris, where he had first studied hysteria, but also among the respectable bourgeois families of Vienna, that this had political and social consequences that he just wasn't prepared to confront. That's correct. And I think it's also true that he couldn't confront it alone. That's something that I always tell people who want to work as, uh, it, as clinicians with trauma or are going to confront trauma in their line of work, whether they're first responders, whether they're journalists. Um, 
don't you can't do it alone don't do it alone you you will um uh simply be re-traumatized yourself uh and uh you will if you're isolated you will not be able to deal with it and freud was isolated he when he published his paper the ideology of hysteria in 1896 he expected it to be to bring him glory i mean it would be like publishing in 1953 the structure of dna you know it was uh and he called it finding the source of the nile and instead of bringing him glory it brought him ostracism and shunning and uh so it he realized that he was never going this idea was never going to be accepted in uh uh in the medical community where he was making a name for himself and he couldn't fight that alone so he uh, he basically retracted his theory that gets into a point you make it and i may be fusing your books but you write about how important the women's movement was to your own investigations into trauma. And uh, at the same time, it was during the Vietnam War, you had these rap groups of Vietnam veterans. But you you really say that without these uh, kind of communal entities, uh, work like yours is not possible. I really, I really believe that's true. And it certainly was true in my case. Um, I... Um, joined a consciousness raising group uh, about six months before I started my psychiatric residency. And um, my colleague and friend, Kathy Amatnik, uh, she was actually a classmate of mine, uh, had been in Mississippi in the civil rights movement during Freedom Summer. And she had seen there what it was like how powerful it was to bring people together in these groups called freedom schools to talk about their lives. And she saw, she's the one who coined the term consciousness raising. Um, she uh, thought of it not only as a method of political organizing, but as a method of scientific inquiry, because she said, nobody knows the truth about women's lives because nobody, because women don't dare tell the truth about their lives. And sure enough, uh, the, the consciousness raising group I was in was a bunch of white, highly educated, um, privileged women. Uh, but even in this group, there was stories of sexual assault, sexual harassment, uh, domestic abuse. Um, there was a lot of reports of violence, and we understood this as a method, of course, of control, the method by which ultimately any, uh, any group that dominates another group has to use to preserve their, their power and control. Uh, so when I started my residency, and here I was a, a brand new uh, uh, 
psychiatrist in training. And my very first two patients on the inpatient service where began my training were women who'd made suicide attempts, very serious suicide attempts, and been hospitalized. And what do you know, both of them gave histories of father-daughter incest. Well, let, let me just stop you there because you write in the book that until work like yours was done, uh, the traditional view is it was one in a million. Do you remember have that right? Yes. One in a million right. women had suffered Body, incest. I mean, all forms of incest. Uh, that was the comprehensive textbook of psychiatry, which was the basic text. So what do you think, the, if that were true, what do you think the odds would be that a, a brand new rookie would see two cases in two weeks? You know, so something was off there. And, uh, and then as I began talking to uh, colleagues, with that, uh, uh, I began collaborating with a young psychologist named Lisa Hirschman, who had just gotten her uh, doctorate. And she was seeing incest survivors in her practice. And just by asking around among the few people we knew, we collected 20 cases. So I think if we hadn't had the women's movement behind us, we wouldn't have dared to publish our findings. Because um, who are we to contradict these, you know, authorities? And not only that, but I'm, I doubt that any psychiatric journal would have published our findings. Well, it wasn't, didn't, do I remember from the book? It wasn't that easy for you to publish your findings. Well, no, we got it accepted uh, in a brand new women's studies journal uh, called Signs Journal of Women in Culture and Society. But uh, academic journals take a long time to publish things even after they've accepted them. And during the year or so that uh, between when we uh, submitted our paper and when it was finally published, we got letters from all over the country. It had been passed hand to hand and copied and women started writing to us saying, I thought I was the only one, or I thought nobody would believe me. Um, so that's when we realized, no, this this was real. I want to ask about that because one of the most uh, interesting parts of the book for me was how that chronic trauma is so severe and how it manifests itself in ways that we wouldn't expect. And but I just also want to say before that, on the, when you talk about hysteria, that's something I saw in War Zone. I saw soldiers shake without being able to stop. I saw them unable to speak. I saw in Salvador, one soldier had a case of blindness, but in fact, there was nothing wrong with his eyes. So that term hysteria, which we often use towards women, it was rife uh, within war. Uh, but let's talk about, I mean, I, I, I was just fascinated with how uh, people, uh, women who suffer incest abuse, will actually try and be protective of their abuser, blame themselves. I mean, the psychological uh, masochism is just overwhelming. I want you to talk about that because it's counterintuitive. Yes, it is counterintuitive, except if you consider from the child's point of view. 
um, the child is faced with an impossible dilemma. Um, first of all, she's helpless and unable to escape. There's, there's no way to resist. Uh, she may or have tried to seek help from the non-abusive parent, usually the mother. Uh, but one of the things we found in, in our incest study uh, uh, was that one of the most frequent uh, concomitants of incest was uh, domestic violence. So they, the, the mothers were battered or otherwise rendered um, uh, helpless themselves. Some of them were physically ill. Some of them were mentally ill. Uh, in, in one way or another, they uh, were helpless bystanders. Uh, and oftentimes also the favoritism that the uh, incest perpetrator lavished on the um, chosen, the, the daughter chosen for abuse, um, made the other siblings and the mother resent this kid. She was given extra privileges and attention. Um, and so from the point of view of the kid, there's nowhere, to, nowhere else to turn. And if the, uh, and, and, and whatever tension she, and affection she gets, this is the price that she has to pay. Um, mentally, she can understand this one of two ways, either this is happening to, to me because I'm bad. If I'm bad, if it, then I can try and try and try and try and try to be good. I can try harder and harder and harder to be good. And maybe if I try hard enough to be good, I'll, I'll, I, you know, I'll be able to be loved for who I am without being abused. The alternative is there is nothing I can do. This is um, this, this isn't happening to me because I'm bad. This is happening because he has made. This is the choice he has made, and that's unbearable. That means there's no hope. There's nothing to be done. Um, this is just you've been abandoned by God and by fate, and so for some. For many kids who are being abused in this way, though it's counterintuitive, it's 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 better to blame herself or himself than to put the blame where it belongs. I want to ask about traumatic memories. Um, you said you write they lack verbal narrative and context; rather, they are encoded in the form of vivid sensations. Robert J. Lifton, who studied survivors of Hiroshima civilian disasters and combat, describes the traumatic memory as an indelible image 
or death imprint. Can you explain that idea? Um, actually, Pierre Chardet, um had a very good way of describing the difference between traumatic memory and normal memory. He said, normal memory is the action of telling the story. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's verbal, it uh, is sort of flexible in over time, you can tell the two minute version of it or the 20 minute version of it. Um, it's so you sort of, you can retrieve it when you want to, and you can put it back when you're done with it. Um, and, and, and it, and you can make meaning of it. It's, he says, it doesn't really count as a memory until we have kind of integrated it into our life story and made it a part of a bigger narrative and made some meaning out of it. Traumatic memory doesn't have any of those features. It's um, rather than verbal, it's very sensory. People will describe the smells, the sounds, um, the uh, the physical sensations they had, um, whether it was dark or light, that sort of thing. Um, uh, if you remember the the recent uh, uh, Senate hearings uh, for the confirmation of um, Justice Kavanaugh, or as, as I call them, the Ayatollahs, um, <laughs> Uh, Ayatollah Kavanaugh. Um, well, we have two sex offenders on the Supreme Court. So. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I, that we know of. Um, that we know of, right? Yeah. Um, Christine Blasey Ford, Professor Ford, um, uh, her was challenged because she couldn't name the date or the location of the party where she was attacked. And, but what she said she remembered most vividly was the laughter, that these boys were laughing as they had her pinned to the bed and with her mouth covered and smothering her. Um, and that, that's the kind of uh, trauma memory that uh, it's, it's, also, it's not mutable in time. It, it, um, and uh, it comes when you don't want it and you can't necessarily retrieve it when you do want it. So in all those regards, traumatic memory is very different from uh, normal memory. And part of the work of uh, recovery is sort of transforming that, that death imprint, if you will, uh, into a a, a living narrative. Since you touched on it, let's talk about male groups. You uh -huh. talk about these, uh, you know, private kind of forms of uh, chronic abuse as being, you know, it may not be exactly your word, small tyrannies, but you liken it to a tyrannical structure of a state. And you write 
about how in a tyranny there is a hierarchy, religious, military, whatever, that profits off of the abuse. And then you write about how we have these uh, hyper-masculine, tyrannical structures, fraternities on college campuses, eating clubs at Harvard where you've taught. Uh, they And uh, my son was an athlete at Colgate. He heard about this abuse, which was common among the fraternities. He's a journalist. He wrote it up in the school paper. And the response was fascinating. The alumni came down on him like an avalanche. He got yes. all sorts of death threats. He couldn't go downtown uh, on the weekends when the kids got drunk. But what was even more chilling was how the administration went after him to cover it up. And I don't think there's anything uncommon about that. I mean, these these groups, and you write about it, and I'll let you explain, but they not only embrace, but they perpetuate this kind of abuse. Mil the military is rife with this stuff. Of course, yeah. I think, in general, all male groups, whether they're fraternities, sports teams, military, and so on, um, first of all, they enforce this dominance hierarchy with their own quite sadistic initiation rites. Yeah. Um, on so the the you know the the pledges um, have to basically go through a symbolic death and sometimes literal death. Um, uh, there's an anthropologist named Piggy Reeves Sanday who wrote about um, a fraternity gang rape as a, as a tradition handed out from you know, one group to the next. Um, and she talked about the, the bonding ritual where you know, copious amounts of alcohol, being beaten, having to you know, do dangerous things like go out on a roof when you're drunk. Um, and then, of course, vomiting and having to clean up vomit and excrement and so on. And then once you've um, submitted to that ritual, you have uh, broken the bond of the young man to his mother and rebonded to the fraternity, to the, to the male group. And indeed, we have lots of data now that indicate that in those all-male environments like fraternities, um, sexual assault is, uh, people who belong to those groups are much more likely than others to commit sexual assault. And indeed, some of them are planned and, and rooms set aside for the purpose after parties. Where yeah, it's also self-selecting. I mean, I wouldn't let these people tell me to do that. Yeah. So what you're doing is getting, uh, a, you're essentially through that initiation process, getting people who are willing to uh, subsume themselves into the group and into that hierarchy. And in the military, in the elite units in particular, this hazing is horrific. And overseas, there's a lot of suicides, and my, anecdotally, most of the – I was with the Marine Corps. Most of the suicides were people who had been hazed and hazed and hazed and ostracized, and you know they, they would have them punish them. There was actually a term called bitch for a day and all this kind of stuff. And then they go in the porta-potties and blow their brains out. Yeah. Uh, th that 
so it's a, it's a, it's a, you write about it. It's a very dark undercurrent in American society and one that is so ingrained in the society all the way up, of course, to the, uh, the uh, Supreme Court nominee hearings, we just don't even speak about. Well, because it really, I, I mean, it, it is also a very privileged group. And so um, people are willing to submit to the, you know, the cruelties because of the many benefits uh, that uh, are promised. And for example, at, at Harvard, at my university, the final clubs, which is the, are the equivalent of fraternities, um, uh, are, well, uh, I, I've heard that they're called the final club because they are the final step of admission into the elite of the elite. Teddy Roosevelt was in the Porcellian Club. Um, uh, uh, FDR was only, I think, in the fly, that was second. <laughs> And uh, JFK, I think, was in the SPI. But they also, they're rumored on campus to have the best parties. Um, and of course, once you're in the club, you, you're, um, your social network is the ruling class. And so um, uh, to, uh, to Harvard's credit, I have to say, when Drew Faust was president, she appointed a, a committee to look into the issue of rape on campus. And they produced a, a report that said male-dominated spaces um, are high-risk environments, and we have to do something to change the culture of the campus. And they actually tried to set some limits uh, on uh, the final clubs, which are separately incorporated, they're not part. You know, they're not part of Harvard. So, um, uh, and it, the limits were pretty tame. I think you, you couldn't, um, if you were in a, a member of the final club that refused to integrate, they gave them all a chance to go co-ed. Those that refused, you couldn't, you know, be recommended for Rhodes Scholar, or uh, you couldn't get certain Harvard privileges. And guess what? The final clubs uh, sued Harvard for sex discrimination. Right, right. And uh, right. that was the end of that. Well, I think you note in the book that in the end, not much changed. No. No. Great. We're going to stop there. That was Dr. Judith Herman the author of Trauma and Recovery, The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.